So who here is excited about the snow on the ground? <laughs> There's a few hands, okay. Daniel, of course, of course. See, that goes without saying. In fact, I, I can remember the uh, repeated prayer requests, well, Michael as well, I'm sure, uh, of the Peters boys for prayer request time is, let it snow. <laughs> so at least someone's praying, and we know those prayers are being answered. It's uh, another awesome thing when we think of the picture every year of the first, you know, uh, I suppose this isn't technically the first snowfall, but it's one of the more significant snowfalls, and the first snowfall happens, and it covers everything up. It takes all the brown away, and it's just this, this covering of white, and we always think of the picture of the Lord Jesus covering our sins up whiter than snow, and it's always a reminder for me every year when this happens, uh, a picture of what God does for us, no matter how much dirt we've had in our lives, how much sin when Jesus' blood covers it, it's whiter than snow and we're forgiven. It's an awesome thing that I'm reminded of every year. Let's take a moment now to bow and pray as we enter God's word. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the many lessons that we continually learn and are reminded of from your word. Thank you, Lord, for the picture of forgiveness that we can see even in the first snowfall. Thank you, Lord, that this... Uh, in, tremendous gift that you've given us is something that isn't just a one-time thing, but that you continually, Lord, cover us with your, with your grace, and that we, we live by it and walk in it day by day. Thank you, Lord, for your word for us this morning, and we pray that you would bless it to each one of us, to our hearts and our situations. Would you open our hearts to receive it, and Father, that out of it, would you bring fruit, and would you bring change in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning with sharing with you a story. The commanding officer was furious when nine GIs who had been out on passes failed to show up for the morning roll call. It was not until 7 p.m. the following day that the man, the first man of the nine missing GIs, finally straggled back into base. I'm sorry, sir, the soldier explained, but I had a date and I lost track of time, so I missed the bus back. But I was determined to get in on time, so I hired a cab. Halfway there, the cab broke down, so I went to a farmhouse, and I persuaded the farmer to sell me a horse. I was riding uh, the horse to the camp when, lo and behold, the animal fell over dead, and I had to walk the last ten miles back to base on foot, and I just got here. Well, this was quite a fantastic story that the man shared, and a little bit skeptical, the colonel let the young man off with only a reprimand. However, after him, seven other stragglers came in in a row, all with a version of the same story. Each had a date, missed the bus, hired a cab, bought a horse, horse died, and came the rest of the way on foot. By the time the ninth man reported in, the colonel had grown weary of hearing this same fantastic story from each man. Okay, he growled. Now, what happened to you, he said, as the last soldier straggled in. Well, sir, I had this date, and I missed the bus back, so I hired a cab. Wait! The colonel cut him off abruptly. I know what happened next. Let me guess. The cab broke down. No, sir, replied the soldier. The cab didn't break down. It was just that we had trouble getting through the road because there were so many dead horses. That's quite the story, isn't it? 
And when we think about excuses, we realize that we've all made them before, haven't we? We've all made excuses at one time or another. As kids, we make excuses or made excuses as to why we didn't do our homework or why we didn't clean up our room. As teenagers, we made excuses about why we were out past curfew or how that mysterious dent appeared in the car door. These are the sorts of scenarios that may or may not have happened in my life. As adults, we make excuses too. Like the time I tried to explain to the policeman why I was going 84 in a 50 zone. You know, I I tried everything. I, I even emphasized that I was going back to Bible college. You know, I, I really laid it on thick, and all he said in return was, you drove past four signs that clearly indicated that you were entering a 50 zone. He held up the radar gun to show me how fast I was going. There was no argument left. My excuses didn't hold up, and I had to take responsibility for my actions by paying the fine. Now, the definition of an excuse... According to Webster, the definition of an excuse is that which is to make an offense or a crime seem less serious or something used to justify a fault. So an excuse is something we we use to try to diminish or lessen a fault that we have made. If anyone's been paying attention to the news in the past couple of weeks, we've all heard variations of the excuses coming out of politicians' mouths, it seems, whether from the Senate scandal whether the excuse is being made for Toronto Mayor Rob Ford, who's admitted to drug use. Or when we look to our neighbors in the South, the United States, we hear the excuses that Barack Obama is making for the failed launch of the so-called Obamacare health coverage. Everywhere we go, everywhere we look, we hear excuses being made all around us. Not only do the people around us and ourselves make excuses about why we did something we shouldn't or about why we didn't do something that we should have, we often make similar excuses to God as well. We can make excuses to God about all sorts of things, can't we? And often these excuses come so easily because we don't necessarily need to justify them to anyone else. We simply need to lift them up and say, okay, God, this is the reason why I couldn't do this or I did that. And on and on we go with this doing this in many different ways. We make excuses to God about why we're dabbling in a certain behavior that we know is sinful, or why my Bible happens to be covered in dust on my bookshelf, or why my service to his church is half-hearted, or why I, I just can't share my faith with that friend, or why I can't do that specific thing you're asking me to do. We come up with all sorts of fantastic reasons as to why We simply can't do what God is asking us to. But no matter how good our excuses sound to ourselves or even to others when we try to justify ourselves, the question we have to ask is, are they working? Do they really fool God? What do you think? The excuses that you've made, the reasons that you've given for why you couldn't do something that you knew God was asking you to do, do they fool God? Does God buy our excuses? I'll let you think about that for a moment while I highlight for you a couple of famous excuses from the Bible. So I'm going to highlight these. I'm going to get a little bit of audience participation here. I'm just going to give the scenario and you tell me who said it or who's involved in this. All right. So here's the first example. This one's one's a, a real easy one to get us rolling here. Who said this? 
Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Moses, that's right. Moses made that famous excuse to the Lord. Now, who made this one? Do not be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't even know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Who said that? That's right, it was Aaron. What an excuse. What a, what, a, what a story. He says, I took the gold, I threw it into the fire, and this calf appeared. Wow. What an excuse. That's, that's one of my favorite ones, actually. Now, who said this? Oh, Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. No, not David. Gideon. That's right. It was Gideon. God called Gideon to lead his people, and he says, I'm the least of the least of the least. Now, here's the last one. This one's a little bit tricky. You'll have to think a little bit. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. Pardon me? No, good guess, though. Not Timothy. I'll give, I'll give you a hint. It was a prophet. Alas, Lord, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. Pardon me? No, sorry, not Thomas. Samuel, good try. No, not Samuel. Jeremiah. Jeremiah. That's right. That's the one we're looking for. Jeremiah gave this excuse when God called him. There's more and more in there from different people. Those are some of the ones that I wanted to highlight for you this morning. And I want to ask you the question about these excuses. What do they all have in common? What do these excuses have in common? There's probably a few things they have in common. But the one I wanted to highlight for you is that they are all about why they did something that they shouldn't have, like Aaron, or about why they couldn't do something that they should, like Moses. So one way or the other, they're either trying to justify why they did something that they shouldn't have or why they couldn't do something that they should. Have you ever done something like that? Have you ever made an excuse to justify why you did something or why you didn't do something? I think most of us have, and I know I have. When we look in the context of service to God, one of the primary ways we do that is through serving His church. And there's many times and many ways where we can make excuses. Say you're asked to teach a Sunday school class, and our excuses start. We're asked to serve on a committee. The excuses start. God puts it into our heart to share our faith with a friend, and we give our excuses. Maybe you're made aware of someone with a need that you could provide, and the excuses start. You're prompted to give money towards God's work, and we make excuses. God asks you to fill in the blank. And we respond with a variation of, I'm too busy, I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm already doing something else. I've already done more than my fair share. I've never done that before. So-and-so would be better at it than me. 
And did I mention, Lord, I'm just really busy. Do any of those hit home? When God first started nudging me in the direction of vocational ministry, I I use the word vocational because it's referring to, it's my job. All of us are called to be giving God everything we have in whatever vocation in life we are. But for me specifically, when I felt God nudging me in the direction of full-time ministry as a vocation, one of my conditions was, okay, Lord, I I think I can do that. Just anything but a senior pastor. I'll do anything else, just not the senior pastor role. I will be a missionary, a youth pastor, maybe a camp director, anything like that. Just not senior pastor. I do not want anything to do with that job. And I had a whole list of reasons as to why. Reasons that I thought were very good, very valid. Not the least of which being my young age or my negative experiences in church as a youth. When I remember specifically one instance where I had this thought cross my mind, and I think I even said it out loud, who in their right mind would ever want to be a pastor? So I'll leave it up to you to wonder whether or not I'm in my right mind. (laughs) But I remember having those thoughts. And so one of the things that began to happen shortly after me having these ultimatum sort of conversations with God, I went to Bible college and Along the way, as I would talk to people about considering going into some sort of full-time ministry, I would begin to hear these sorts of comments. Oh, you're going to be a pastor then? Oh, no, 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 no. I'd always, you know, throw cold water on that. And then someone would, would just say, no, I can, I can definitely see you as being a pastor. And I would just keep giving all my excuses as to why that couldn't happen. But no matter how good our excuses sound to ourselves or even to others... Are we fooling God? Now, thankfully, God is abundantly patient with us, and he was with me. But there is a limit to God's patience. You know, we go back to the example of Moses, when he was making all of his excuses as to why God had the right, or God had the wrong guy for the job. And Moses made excuse after excuse, and God kept answering each of those excuses with an assurance But he got to his fifth excuse as to why God had the wrong guy to lead his people out of Egypt. And in Exodus 4, chapter 4, 4, verse 14, it says this. And we need to pay attention to what happens next. It says here, Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. I want you to pay attention to this. God's anger burned against Moses. Why? Because he continued to make excuse after excuse, after excuse. Now, I want you to let this this truth just really sink in for a moment. God becomes angry at our excuses. It's not because the Lord has patience for only four excuses, but five is too many. The reason is because Moses is refusing to trust God. You see, when, when Moses begs God to send someone else in his place... He is in effect telling the Lord, I don't trust you. I don't trust your call. I don't trust your ability to use me or equip me for the job. I don't even trust your judgment in choosing me in the first place. And should it come as any surprise to us that when we take this attitude, it angers God. And like Moses, we need to decide, yes or no, will we trust God and simply obey 
Will we make that decision? Will you and I accept responsibility for that, for what God is asking us to do? Or will we keep making excuses? Luke records for us in the passage that Henry read for us earlier. And I invite you to turn there with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke records for us in this passage an account of three men whom Jesus met as he traveled along with his disciples. Two of these men declared that they wished to follow Jesus, become his disciples. The other man, Jesus invited, called to come and follow him. But when push came to shove, all three of these men had excuses as to why they couldn't follow. Let's look at the first excuse. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. The first excuse we see is this. Excuse number one. Excuse me, Jesus, but the accommodations just aren't to my liking. Let's read verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, him being Jesus, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. It's quite a bold statement that this young man makes. I assume he's young because that's the age bracket of people who would be becoming disciples of Jesus. This young man comes and just, no ifs, ands, or buts. He makes his declaration, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. It's an all-encompassing statement. The kind of statement that any leader would just hear, and it's music to their ears. It's what you want to hear, isn't it? I will follow you wherever you will go. Now, can you make a statement like that? Have you ever made a statement like that? Could you say that without any idea of where Jesus may be headed, that I will follow you wherever you will go? Can you say that without even knowing what will be involved in the journey? Perhaps you need some more information first. I know I sure did. Somewhere during my first year of Bible college, I came to the point of accepting that God was calling me to become a gulp <laughs> pastor. I accepted that he was placing that call on me. But I wanted some assurances. I wanted to, to know some things up front, questions I had, like when and where, and it's going to go really well for me all the time, right? And this is how God consistently replied to those questions. When? When I say so. Where? Leave that one up to me. And the no bad stuff thing? Be of good courage. <laughs> okay, not exactly the sorts of assurances that I was looking for. But so too, Jesus' response to the man was definitely not what he was looking for either. And certainly, he was not expecting what Jesus said next. Most men, we would think, with a cause, most leaders are trying to get as many followers as possible. So when someone comes up and says, I will follow you, why throw cold water on it? But that's exactly what we see Jesus do here. His approach is radically different than any other political leader or, or leader of a movement or even... A, pastors or preachers like myself. I hear someone say, I want to follow Jesus, and I say, amen, brother, let's sign you up. Throwing cold water on that enthusiasm just doesn't seem like a great idea. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. You see, the reason he does that is he doesn't want half-hearted followers who don't really understand what they're getting into. 
Because he knows that a half-hearted follower, even with this great declaration of commitment up front, this half-hearted follower would start complaining about these poor accommodations a few nights down the road when they're sleeping on the side of the road in a ditch because no one would take them in. You see, Jesus didn't have a a house or a, a home to lay his head in. He was at the mercy of people taking them in as they traveled and as he taught. And I'm sure there were many nights that he spent under the stars. And Jesus tells him the reality. If you follow me, this is going to be your life. Even the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but I've got nothing. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to follow? Jesus didn't want someone who only saw the glitz and glamour that surrounded Jesus' miracles and didn't understand the sacrifice and the suffering. Jesus wanted this man to count the cost up front. Because he knew that if the man didn't count the cost first, then somewhere down the line the excuses would come and he would fall away. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever made a commitment to follow Jesus somewhere in the past? Have you? If so, have you now at points in your life found yourself complaining about how hard or tiring it is? If so, let me ask you the question. Did you count the cost first? You see, Jesus never said that following him would be easy. Yes, his yoke is easy and his burden is light because he's pulling with us, but he never guaranteed that the, that the road would be easy, that the sufferings and the trials and, and the tribulations wouldn't be there. He never said that. In fact, he guaranteed just the opposite. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me now friends as a pastor as a preacher it is my heart's desire to see as many people as possible come to saving faith in jesus christ i pray to see them come in their dozens and even their hundreds i believe that god wants to do that in this town of killarney but you know what i don't want to just get a crowd in this church i don't want to just get people in the pews If that's all that we're interested in, then we could do other more attractive things to try to get people to walk through the doors than hold up the message of the cross. Because the message of the cross is not always attractive for an easy-go, easy-come world. It means sacrifice. It means self-denial. It means suffering. And we've got to count that cost up front. Because if we just trick people in with easy believism with the soft-sell gospel that Jesus is going to fix all your problems and life will always be great. And then they get down the road and realize, why is there suffering and, and trials? We've misrepresented the gospel. Jesus never misrepresented himself. He made people understand up front that following him was an all-encompassing, life-changing decision that would involve trials, that would involve suffering. And Jesus' desire is that you will follow him. But he wants you to think it through good and hard first. He wants you to understand the cost involved so that once you do start following him, you'll never, ever turn back, no matter how poor the accommodations. Because consider that right now, this moment, the accommodations for many of our brothers and sisters around the world includes prison. There's a pastor in Iran who I've read about recently who has been in prison for months, and he's on death row. And they're fighting to try to save his life. That's a brother of mine. He's in Iran, sitting in a prison cell right now for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. These are the accommodations that many who follow his name are in right now 
Are we counting the cost? Are we only following him because we're in the cushy Hilton (laughs) accommodations of Canada, where it's easy to be a Christian? Where would we be if we were in a place like Egypt right now, in a place like Syria? The cost would be much higher. Are we ready for those sort of accommodations? Are we ready to follow him literally wherever he's leading us? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What an irony that the King of Glory doesn't even have his own place to call home. He has no earthly security. He was loaned accommodations by those who loved him. He even had to borrow a coin to tell a story. He said, give me a coin. He didn't have one on his own, his own person. When they had to pay the temple tax, he had to do a miracle with Peter going and getting the fish with the coin because he wasn't even carrying his own money. He had no money. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy. He was even buried in a borrowed tomb. And it's a good thing, too. He didn't need it very long. He had nothing. And those who follow him must be prepared to count the cost. Evidently, the man who had just moments before declared, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go, did not find the accommodations to his liking. The cost was too high. And he is never mentioned or heard from again. If you're going to follow Jesus, walk his road, serve him, it may well cost you everything. And as I stand up in this pulpit, I'm well aware of that. And someday, I may have to cross that. I know that there's other pastors in Canada who are already having to count the cost for speaking out in things that are being accused of hate crimes, going to court over these things. Someday, we may have to face that cross sooner than we think. Are we ready for that? Are we counting the cost now? Because the days are coming where it's not going to be as easy as it is right now. I believe that. Are we ready for it? Remember the words of Jesus. If we are ready to count the cost, he said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is the promise, and that is what we live for. Here's excuse number two. The second man comes up, verses 59 and 60. Jesus said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Oh, this one really hits home for me. It's a conversation that's a little bit shocking, in a sense. And it shocks not even just non-Christian people. I think it shocks us as Christians as well. Because the death of a loved one is something we have to have some sensitivity about, right? Like, if, if, you're, if, you're, if your own spouse or your father or someone passed away and, and I come over and say, what are you all down in the dumps for? You get out there and start preaching the gospel. You let someone else take care of the funeral preparations. What would you think of me if I came and told you that? You know, I come over for, for uh, you're expecting some words of comfort and sympathy, and I say, you know, stop feeling sorry for yourself. We got business to attend to here. That's basically what Jesus is saying here. And it's shocking to me that Jesus could appear to be so callous. I feel almost sympathetic for this man when he says, let me go and bury my father. Jesus' reply is shocking. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, On the outset, it seems extremely harsh and insensitive. But it might help us to have a little bit of insight into Jewish funeral procedure. An initial burial took place shortly after a person died. Usually, I believe it's within 24 hours. 
And the reasons for this was they would not be embalmed and the body could very quickly begin to decay. So they would have the funeral and the burial as quickly as possible. And so after the initial burial in the first 24 hours, the son would return to bury the bones in a special box one year later. After the decay process had taken place, he would return, take the bones, put them into a box, and put them in a slot in the tomb wall. Now, if that is the situation here, and it seems reasonable to assume that it was, then this man who has been called by Jesus could be asking for up to a year's delay before following. So, not a scenario of perhaps even an immediate death of let me go bury my father who died yesterday. His father may well have died months earlier. And here he's saying, I need to go through with the procedure. A year from now, I can be freed up to come follow you. And so here we see that Jesus perhaps is calling this man, uh, his call on this man is not as harsh as we may initially see it as. So this excuse here, we see Jesus essentially saying, let others take care of things that aren't of eternal consequence. Your father's already dead. Nothing's going to be changed for him whether or not you're the one who gets his bones and puts them in the wall. That's not going to change anything. But there's people alive right now who need to hear the message of the kingdom. And while you delay, there's people who will not hear because you're waiting. And so Jesus is putting here an urgency on the mission. Even our excuses, as valid as they may seem, the death of a parent, he's saying, in light of eternity that people are entering into every day, we've got no time to waste. The kingdom is now. We need to declare it. We need to preach it. My call cannot wait. And let me tell you today, if God is calling you to follow him, to commit to him, to take up a ministry for him, any specific thing that he wants you to do for him, his call takes priority. His call comes before anything else, even your family. Make no mistake about it. It is an absolute privilege to be called by Jesus Christ. It truly is. The Creator, who by His Word created all things, when He calls my name, follow me. What a privilege. What an honor to be called by the Creator to follow Him. And who knows what Jesus had planned for that young man when He called him. Maybe that young man would have done great things. Evidently, Jesus was calling him to be a preacher, to declare the kingdom. Perhaps He had... A, a powerful message that he would share down the road. Who knows what Jesus had in mind when he called that young man to come follow him. Maybe there would have been a book of the Bible with his name on it, like John or Peter or Matthew. But we'll never know because it never happened. All because of an excuse. So don't allow an excuse to derail what God wants you to do like it did for that young man. Excuse number three, I'll follow you, Lord, but first, let me just do one more thing. Verse 61, still another one said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in my kingdom. Again, doesn't this seem like a reasonable request? Would you deny a soldier going to war one last chance to bid his loved ones farewell? But it's clear that Jesus knew this young man's heart. Jesus knew that this young man's heart, 
something about this request, there were to always be just one more thing. Just one more thing, Lord, then I'm ready. Just let me get this out of the way, and then I will follow you. And don't we often do the same thing? I'll follow you, Jesus, um, once I'm a little bit older. Um, Once I have myself a little more put together. Once I've figured some more things out in my life. Once I'm a little less busy, Jesus, then I'll start following. Then I'll start reading my Bible when work isn't so hectic, you know? I'll pray to you when it's more convenient with my schedule, Jesus. Um, But don't worry, Lord. Just one more thing, then you'll have my complete allegiance. Have you ever done something like that before? Are you maybe doing that right now? Holding back, saying, yes, Lord, I'll, I'll do it. Just one more thing. Well, the question has to be asked, if we are doing that, is that good enough to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, not according to him. He says, I'm calling you now, today. What is your answer? Yes or no? No excuses, no delay. Decide. And when Peter, James, and John followed Jesus, they literally decided on the spot. The scripture says they dropped their nets and went after him. And it happened right at a time when business was looking good because remember, Jesus had just got them a bumper a bumper haul of fish. Their, their boat was so full it was almost sinking and their nets were tearing Because Jesus had done this miracle, and in this context, they left it all behind and followed Jesus on the spot. They had to decide. There's no looking back. Others have looked back when God has called them forward. We think of examples like Lot's wife, who looked back when they were told not to. We think of Judas Iscariot. We think of Demas, who Paul mentions in his letters. Those who began, but then looked back. And are those people remembered for anything positive? No. They're held up as cautionary tales of what not to do. They were not worthy of the kingdom. If you're going to follow Jesus, there must be no delay, no looking back. For me, when I finally accepted that God had placed the call on my life to be a pastor, just the where part remained the mystery. And one day in prayer, I don't remember specifically the day or the occasion, but one day this thought settled in my mind with just stark certainty. It settled on me as as clear as day. They are going to ask you to come and preach. (laughs) And the they was none other than my home, the Clarny Mennonite Church. It was this realization that was so certain, I couldn't argue with it. There was no denying it. And it was as as a matter of fact as if someone had just told me, snow is white. It was that clear. And I didn't know what to do with it. I'd never in a thousand years, just to be honest with you, I never thought I was coming back here. Ever. My thought at the time revolved around heading to the promised land of Alberta. Because everyone was going out there. All my friends seemed to be heading out west. All the money was heading out west. The oil boom was on. And I just thought, we'll be there. Leanne's family's nearby. It just makes sense. And that's where my thoughts and plans were headed. And so as I told Leanne what I had realized or or heard in my prayer time, her response was simply, you'll say no, right? (laughs) And I said to her, well, of course I'll say no. Long story short, a few months later, just like God had told me, when I was asked the question, I was standing right over there after church, I wasn't surprised. I was expecting it. A short while later, after some wrestling, I said yes, and the rest is history. 
You know, I had a laundry list of excuses and reasons to say no, not the least of which was my wife's desire to be near her family. But to this day, I know with complete certainty that had I said no, I would have been excusing myself right out of God's will for my life. Just as certainly if I was driving down a straight road and I decided to swerve my car into the ditch. That's how clear God made it to me. And does that mean it's always been easy? (laughs) Of course not. In fact, saying yes to God up front is in many ways the easy part. It's the not looking back part that is often the challenge. You know, this young man was eager to follow, but Jesus knew that the daily hand on the plow, the yoke of responsibility would derail him even before he started. Because he always had that one more thing, Lord. And the true follower of Jesus makes no excuses and allows no earthly distractions to stop them from keeping their hand on that plow. We don't look back for anything or anyone. We keep our eyes on Jesus and our hand on the plow, no matter what circumstances are going on around us. No matter how full of of discouragement you, you may be at sometimes, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We keep our eyes fixed on Him and we keep going. We don't stop. We don't even look back because He's in front of us. And as long as He's in front of us, we keep our eyes on Him. We keep going. We don't quit until He tells us it's over. And if He hasn't told you it's over, if He hasn't told you it's okay to take your foot off the gas, your hand off the plow, then don't do it. Because He still wants you to be doing what He has asked you to do. And this is, this is the call for each one of us when we're called to follow Jesus Christ. Is your hand on the plow? Or are you looking back, pining for old days? Are you saying, you know, this hand on the plow thing is getting tedious. I'm getting tired, Lord. I want to quit. I want to give up. Can't someone else take over the plow? And he says, no, that's your plow. I've called you to it. Keep your hand on it. You'll make it. You can do it. Keep your eyes on me. Are you keeping your eyes on Jesus today? Are you keeping your hand on the plow moving forward? Or are we making excuses? My friend, the sin of excuses, the sin of excuses, and I call it a sin because that's what it is. It's a cloak for our disobedience. The sin of excuses needs to be dealt with in this life. Because if we do not deal with excuses and stop making them in this life, then we will have to give an account for each and every one of our excuses and our lack of service in the next life when we stand before the righteous judge and all of our excuses will be gone and we will be exposed truly as we are. We'll have to answer for them one day. So why not deal with them now, today, and decide? No more excuses. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's keep moving ahead faithfully doing what he has called each and every one of us to do. He wants all of you. He wants the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if you give it to him, he will take and make something beautiful out of your life. So what is Jesus saying to you today? And what is your answer? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your call is not an easy one. It is not for the faint of heart. It's not for those looking for a comfy, cozy, luxurious life. But it is, Lord, for those 
who desire the abundant life. The life of peace and joy and purpose. A life that looks beyond the immediate circumstances around us all the way ahead into eternity. To realize that what we do here is just but a a shadow, a, a dim reflection of the glory that we will yet see. And so, Father, as we consider that day when we'll come into your, into your presence, and you'll ask us, what have you done with your life? Give account of yourself. Will we be able to look at our life and say, Lord, I kept my hand on the plow. It wasn't always easy, but I kept my eyes on you. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Oh, Lord, I look forward to that day. Give each one of us the strength, the courage, the encouragement, the perseverance to not give up, to not look around at circumstances, to not give in to discouragement, to not look back to the old lusts of the flesh and say, I want to go back there. Oh Lord, block that out. Keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us, oh Father, to surrender our excuses at the cross and simply follow. For your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.